Welcome to this week's episode of Christ-Centered Conversations, a Come Follow Me podcast where Celia and I interview everyday Latter-day Saints who are striving to become more like the Savior. As we've mentioned, we are not professional scriptorians nor religious scholars and have created this podcast to give a new perspective on how to approach the scriptures. We want to offer insights, ideas, and viewpoints that anyone and everyone can find as they study the scriptures with accessible tools and resources available to all. This week, we will be diving into 2 Nephi 1 and 2, which is so doctrinally dense. We'll be discussing several gospel heavy hitters today, such as the atonement, agency, and the plan of salvation. Yes, we are so excited for these chapters. I was a little shocked that it was only two, but then when I read and looked at what was in them, I was like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. But before we can begin, we have an exciting announcement. We have decided to also create an Instagram. This is where you guys can follow the Instagram, maybe ask some questions. It's a good way to stay updated on when we post about new episodes as well. So we are super excited. It's called, and I'll go slow so you guys can look at your Instagrams right now and find us, ChristCentered.convo. Again, on Instagram, that's ChristCentered.convo. Make sure to turn your notifications on so when we post something, you can ask your questions. It's also a really good place to create a community where people can tell their insights, maybe from the episode or maybe just their own studyings. It's just us trying to create a community of Christ on Instagram. So we are super excited about that. Today, we had the opportunity to have another personal friend of mine on with us. Uh, this guy's the type of guy you want to be friends with. Let me just tell you, salt of the earth kind of person. So without further ado, we welcome Jeremy Coggins on with us today. Jeremy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? For sure. Yeah, I'm originally from South Carolina, but currently living here in Provo. I'm a junior at BYU, expecting to graduate next spring, so I'm super excited about that. Um, I, I like sports, movies, basically anything with my friends. Super easy going, so anything that I'm doing with my friends, I'll usually be down for. Like I said, Jeremy's the kind of guy you want to be friends with. So just like last week, I had a mission friend on, Jake Harvath. If you haven't listened to the episode, go check it out. Jeremy and I met in Honduras, and it was kind of a very interesting how we ended up meeting. So I had just gotten transferred to a new area, and I had been asked to be the zone leader. And Jeremy was one of my district leaders. I, I think it should have been the other way around, but he was a lot more qualified than me. But one night, he or he was giving me his report. Uh, he just asked me where I was from, and I said, well, I'm from Virginia. And he seemed really surprised at the time. And I, I didn't think it was that interesting, but he he went on and asked me, he was like, what uh, city are you from? And I said, well, I'm from this uh, little town right outside of Richmond called Mechanicsville. And I was not expecting him to know where that was. But all of a sudden he lit up and was like, oh, I have cousins that live there. And he told me their names and totally had this family that lived in the ward that shared the uh, building with us. Um, and so that was kind of a, just a cool connection. And then we just started kind of talking and finding out how much in common we had together. We talked about football, talked about, we just had a lot in common. We both vacationed in Myrtle beach. And then when we got to BYU, we ended up being roommates for two years. So Jeremy and I are really good friends. He's an awesome guy. But when I mentioned football, I also remember that this week is the Super Bowl. So I wanted to get each one of our picks just in case we win some money off of the correct prediction here. So my pick personally, I think the Kansas City Chiefs will win. I think it's going to be a close game, 27 to 21, but I don't know. What do you think, Jeremy? No, yeah, I'm I'm a Patrick Mahomes believer as well. I feel like there's every reason to pull for the Niners, but I'm going to go with the Chiefs. I am honestly torn. I am from the Bay Area, so the Niners are like my childhood team, but – I'm a believer in Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. So we'll oh, see. <laughs> I had to say it. They're so cute. So you guys can drop your unpopular opinions about them below. We can have a discussion about that as well. Well, there you have it, folks. Those are our Super Bowl predictions. But let's get into the more spiritual side of things. So this week, like I said, we're studying 2 Nephi 1 and 2. And I've mentioned that these are very doctrinally dense scriptures. We have some of the most famous scriptures from the Book of Mormon in these chapters, and we will be going through them. However, today we kind of wanted to go through some less well-known scriptures, but nonetheless as important doctrinally. So I wanted to get started actually in 2 Nephi 1.4. And now we know in the scripture that Lehi is talking to his family. They're in the new world. They're in the promised land. And Lehi brings up a really interesting point. He says that he had a vision that Jerusalem had been destroyed. And he's really grateful that he, that the Lord brought his family 
out of Jerusalem at that time so that they could avoid the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, like I mentioned last week, I'm just kind of a guy that really likes to envision what's going on in the scriptures. I think I mentioned that I like to pretend as if I was a director for the scriptures and how I would put that together in a movie format. And so Lehi here, I imagine him waking up in a cold sweat after having had such a terrible vision of destruction and fire. Basically, I just sort of feel for Lehi in this moment, knowing what horror he must have witnessed in his vision. We, you, we tend to think that visions are these beautiful images of the celestial kingdom and of God, but at times visions are scary. So I think that Lehi in this moment woke up in a cold sweat. He's really scared, but he's also very grateful that his family made it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the destruction of Jerusalem because I will tie it into a doctrine that we will get into in a minute. But one of the things is I wanted to sort of go to the history of the destruction of Jerusalem at this time. So we know that in about 605 BC, the king of Judah at the time rebelled against Babylon. And Babylon basically took them over. They laid siege to the city. They took them over and the king was killed. And that's when Zedekiah was placed as the king of Judah. He was sort of handpicked by the Babylonians. And then we know that this is around the time that Lehi and his family, this is around the time that the Book of Mormon begins. At that time, the Jews were having to pay tribute to the Babylonians, to a people who literally hated their religion and basically spat on their ways. So we know that the Babylonians had this hatred for the Jews. And we know that Zedekiah, a few years after Lehi and his family departs from Jerusalem, we know that Zedekiah rebels against Babylon. And the same thing happens, except this time it's much worse. I wanted to read a little bit about the destruction of, of Jerusalem at this time. And we know that in 2 Kings 25, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. So I imagine Lehi here witnessing all that, witnessing family members, acquaintances, perhaps buyers. We, we think he was a merchant right? People that he knew suffering this great degree and having to be in bondage to these people that hated them. And we know that this is part of what's called the Babylonian captivity. And it's part of the scattering of, of Israel. I think Lehi is very grateful that he was part of a different scattering of Israel, one on his terms where he is now in a free land. And I think that's what brings us to the topic that Lehi decides to speak about first, which is liberty. Celia had a thought about Nebuchadnezzar and, and who was the king of Babylon at the time that she wanted to share with you. So I'll let her take that away from here. Yeah. So I just want to add off of what you were saying about that destruction of Jerusalem in 605 BC. And just to clarify too, so there was that first capturing or destruction and then Zedekiah took over, right hand picked by the Babylonians, and then Nebuchadnezzar went back into ruling, right? He took over again. And we know in the Book of Mormon, it says in chapter one, this is around 600 BC. And Nephi states in the scriptures, first Nephi 1-4, for it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, right? So Nephi and his family, they all left in between the, the two takeovers of Nebuchadnezzar. And something really cool is when you go to the Bible, and this is something that I love, Carter's into the whole geography of the Book of Mormon. I love finding different scriptural connections that can prove the Book of Mormon, right? Um, obviously not that you need to prove it, you need your testimony and the spirit to confirm it, but this is also just something that's so cool that the spirit can also work through as well. But in the book of Daniel, he says, in the third year of the reign of King of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon unto Jerusalem which is about that 605 BC time, right? That first siege. And we know the story of Daniel. He gets taken up to Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dream. And when you look at 605 and 600 BC, it's only a five-year time gap. And people assume Nephi was about 16 or 17 by the time his family left Jerusalem. But Daniel in 605 BC was about that same age. So it's kind of like having a priest older brother with a deacon younger brother like that was probably the age difference between daniel and nephi which would explain one why nephi wasn't taken up with daniel and that group of boys to be trained but two 
close enough to age and to actually know each other, which is kind of cool. Like they're in the same spot. It's around the same time period. Like those two could have been straight up homies, right? Daniel could have picked on Nephi or something, right? I just think it's kind of cool to look at that and think like how close they were, but also look how aware the Lord is. The Lord could have easily said, eh, I got to get Lehi and his family off to the promised land. But he knew Daniel and he knew his situation and he cared for both of them at the same time, right? The Old Testament and the Book of Mormon overlap immensely in time periods. So I think this is another cool connection between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. But I'll go back to you. Once again, Celia with the knowledge bomb. I really enjoyed learning that. I actually really didn't know that before. So let's get back into Lehi. Lehi chose to speak on the topic of freedom here really in an interesting way. We know that the Babylonians were forcing the Jews to pay tribute to them and basically that the Jews were in captivity essentially to the Babylonians. Similar but not as harsh as the Egyptians, I want to say. But it makes sense why Lehi decides to speak on the topic of liberty and freedom as they make it into the promised land. One of the things that I kind of thought was interesting as well, and I'm skipping ahead to 2 Nephi 2, but how Lehi speaks about a physical freedom, right? They come into the new world and they are the only ones there, so to speak. They make their own rules. They decide how the government, air quotes, government is to be run. And then he also speaks about a spiritual freedom, which is a more 2 Nephi 2, that Spiritual freedom is only given through the Messiah, who is the great mediator. So Jeremy is one of the most patriotic people that I've ever met in my entire life. When we were roommates, he hung up a massive American flag in our living room, and I always felt like I needed to salute it when I walked in. But something else, too, he, he really does love his country. He loves the freedom that America offers. I wanted to ask Jeremy here, how has he been blessed living in this land of freedom? We know that Lehi prophesied that this would be a land of freedom to anybody that would inhabit it. So I wanted to ask Jeremy this question. How have you been blessed in living in a land of freedom? I really like this question because I think there's multiple ways you can you can answer it. The first couple of things that came to mind for me in terms of how I've been blessed from living in a land such as America with all this freedom is that it truly is a land of opportunity. As kids, we grew up with the luxury of having dreams of doing whatever we wanted. We, whether that was a profession or a sport, we had dreams and aspirations. And, and for the most part, barring other circumstances, we always had the chance to achieve those things. Um, and in other countries that aren't as free and don't have those capabilities, people don't grow up with that, that opportunity. They, they grow up and they are told what they're going to do. And whenever they grow up, they do that thing. So I think I, I really just love how here in America and all of more free countries, there are multiple paths to success and we're able to explore those paths. On a more spiritual note or something that helps us spiritually is I really love being in a country where we can be free of the fear of a religious perse persecution. That doesn't mean we are immune to people who will criticize us of our beliefs or maybe pick on us. But we don't have to fear that institutionalized persecution that uh, some governments still impose on their citizens and, and also historically was always a factor. Uh, we were just mentioning how the Jews were always were often persecuted. The Israelites, every place they went, they were taxed and they were driven out of the land. But I, I feel so fortunate to grow up in America where I never had to truly fear that. I love that. It's such a blessing to live in this country. And... I'm reminded of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham, right? We know that the Lord was willing to spare the land because of the righteous and that he was willing to protect the righteous at the, at the last day, right? That being said, we are warned by Lehi in these chapters about what becomes of this land if it is inherited by people who aren't being righteous, who reject him as God. I want to make a point that we need to be those righteous people of this promised land. We know that the Lord is willing to protect the righteous, and we have to be the righteous. We have a knowledge of God, and we cannot reject him going forward. Now, I wanted to get into a totally different topic. I, I could talk about patriotism, living in this land for days. 
but I wanted to get into a new topic. So I'm going to read 2 Nephi 1.17. And this is just more of an interesting thing as opposed to doctrine, but I, I do believe there is some doctrine and some principles we can take away from this verse. So in this verse, some context, Lehi is talking to Laman and Lemuel, and he's criticizing them for their actions. He's reminding them of the things that they had done wrong. And I think it was in an attempt to get them on the right track and make sure that they were continuing to progress down the covenant path. I know last week we talked about not giving Laman and Lemuel enough credit, but we do have to remember they made mistakes. And Lehi here is reminding them of the mistakes, but also encouraging them to keep going forward with faith, to keep building upon the faith that they have been cultivating over these last we don't know how long they were on the water, but they had been cultivating some faith. So in first Nephi one, or I'm sorry, second Nephi one seventeen, it says, my heart hath been weighed down with sorrow from time to time. For I have feared lest for the hardness of your hearts, the Lord, your God should come out in the fullness of his wrath upon you that ye be cut off and destroyed forever. When I read this verse, it's not necessarily a verse that we stop and ponder, but I did ponder one phrase in this verse, and it was, my heart has been weighed down with sorrow. And I thought it was a verse, I thought that was a saying that is repeated often throughout scriptures that your heart is weighed down with sorrow. But actually, as I looked up other references to this sentence, to this phrase, there is no other reference. The only other times you hear about this is my soul being weighed down. So I thought it was interesting that Lehi referenced his heart being weighed down. I took this a little further. I got a little bit down the rabbit hole with this. And I have to thank my 12-year-old self for this. I read a lot of the Rick Riordan books, the Percy Jackson books, and there was another series that focused on the Egyptian gods. Where am I going with this? We know that Lehi had connection to Egypt. We know that he wrote in their language, and there was a chance that he had done business in Egypt. There was a chance that he had traveled to Egypt to do business. We know that possibly Nephi, in some translations and some spellings, could be an Egyptian name. That, again, is not, that's just besides the point. But what I wanted to get into was this idea of your heart being weighed down. In Egyptian custom, they have a very unique view of the afterlife. They believe in when someone dies, they go through these steps of being tested. You have to know the right answers to get to the next step. And then once you've gotten through all these steps, you come into this big chamber and there's 42 judges. And you have to know the names of each one of the 42 judges. Once you pass that, your heart, your physical heart is weighed against a feather. I want to read this from the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, this little excerpt. It said, the ancient Egyptians believed that the heart recorded all of the good and bad deeds of a person's life and was needed for judgment in the afterlife. After a person died, the heart was weighed against the feather of Mat, goddess of truth and justice. The scales were watched by Anubis, the jackal-headed god of embalming, and the results recorded by Thoth, the ibis-headed god of writing. If a person had led a decent life, the heart balanced with the feather and the person was rendered worthy to live forever in paradise with Osiris. I just thought that was kind of interesting that Lehi, who we know had connections at least maybe on a minimal basis, but we know he had some connection to Egypt, used this phrase, my heart has been weighed down with sorrow. Meaning if there is this Egyptian connection to their view of the afterlife and their view of being taken into the afterlife through judgment, it's interesting that he references his heart being weighed down because of sorrow, because of his sons, that he thought that because he was sorrowful, his heart wouldn't, wouldn't, be the ma wouldn't match the weight of the feather. I thought it was interesting because a lot of times we feel sorrowful and we feel like that sorry feeling that we, we have makes us unworthy of God. It makes us feel that we can't feel sorry, we, we can't feel pain, that we always have to be okay especially when it comes at the hands of other people. And I, and I wanted to say that be, we can feel those things. We can feel sorry. We can feel bad about things that have happened in our life. Nowhere does it say we can't have those feelings. It doesn't make us any less worthy. 
But I like what Lehigh does in this situation. He doesn't just sit back and decide to feel sorry about himself forever. He tries to do something about it. He tries to make what's causing his pain right. And I think that's the lesson here. It's a bit of a stretch. I just wanted to add the Egyptian symbolism of weighing down the heart, but I did want to connect it where we have to do things in our life. We have to be proactive. It doesn't matter if other people harm us or do things to us. We have to be proactive for our own happiness and we have to take steps in order to be responsible. So one of the things uh, that Lehigh says a lot going forward was that in as much as you keep my commandments, you shall prosper in the land. But in as much as you don't keep my commandments, you should be cut off from my presence. And so we see this balance between if you do what's right, you're prosperous. And if you don't do what's right, you're not prosperous and you're cut off from his presence. And we see these blessings of prosperity. We know that Lehi talks about physical freedom and also spiritual freedom. So I have to believe that prosperity can be temporal or physical and it can also be spiritual. So that leads me into my next question for Jeremy. I wanted to ask them, ask him, how has he been blessed with prosperity, both physical and spiritual by obeying the commandments? Yeah, I think that's so true. I, I really have been blessed both temporally and spiritually through striving to obey the commandments. Uh, first, temporally, I believe I'm a more disciplined and mature person because of that structure that I was given whenever I was super young. For those who are close to me, that they might laugh and at me saying that I'm mature, but I truly think, know that I'm better off for, through striving to keep the commandments. Um, and also more other practical things. I, I've definitely had doors open to me that otherwise wouldn't have been opened if I hadn't been striving to be closer to my Heavenly Father. And even doing a short history lesson of my family and the examples of my family on both my mom and dad's side, uh, the whole trajectory of our our lineage of our of our descendants has been built on the foundation of the faith of my ancestors. So I'm very appreciative of the commandments and the more practical benefits it has. On the spiritual side of things, I know I've become closer to God through striving to obey the commandments. A way I know that this has happened is because I'm able to take things in stride in my life a little better. I don't always ask why things are happening. Or, or rather, I don't have pity on myself when things don't go exactly my way. I feel like obeying the commandments, you become closer to God, and you gain a better perspective of the things that happen in your life. So with that spiritual strength, I'm able to, I feel like I've been able to confront trials in my life better and be more appreciative and overall just have a better attitude. Although I don't always understand why things happen, I feel like being closer to the Spirit allows me to recognize answers to prayers even when I don't anticipate them. Thanks for those comments, Jeremy. I think going off of this topic of obedience and commandments, there's a scripture a little bit later on in this first chapter of 2 Nephi. It's verse 23. It says, Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness, shake off the chains with which ye are bound, and come forth out of, out of obscurity and arise from the dust. And this is Lehi speaking to, I think, mostly Laman and Lemuel. But something that I have noted down is dust um, and what that means specifically in this context. And it's actually a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith. He says, everywhere you look, you find law and order, the element obeying the law given to them, true to their calling. But man rebels. And in this thing, man is less than the dust of the earth because he rejects the counsels of the Lord. I love that quote. It always gives me the chills every time I read it, read it because I'm like, well, shoot, now I'm less than dust. <laughs> and I think it just gives me more hope to obey the commandments of God, right? Like I think about like the creation of the earth, right? And like thinking about all the beautiful things and it just kind of puts things into perspective. Like everything does follow the order to which it's commanded to do. The I'm looking outside at our trees, right? They are barren right now because it's winter right? They, they dropped everything, but in the spring, it's going to come back to life. It will grow like it's supposed to. And then in the fall, it will turn red. And then the next winter, they're going to fall off again, exactly as it's supposed to. And it goes back to this whole point Lehi is making is that, you know, in as much as you shall keep my commandments, you shall prosper. You shall have the Lord with you. You know, you are his child of God that's obeying. And I love that point that Lehi makes with the dust. 
I love that. I think about the dust of the earth and I think about we are made out of the dust from the dust we were created into the dust we return. And I think it's very symbolic, like Celia was saying. And I wanted to piggyback off of that scripture of the awake and arise. We know that Laman and Lemuel had been spiritually asleep. And what I mean by that is they were basically not awake to the gospel. They weren't actively trying to obey the commandments and and do what was right. And I think some of us fall into that category where we're completely asleep to the gospel. We aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing and we're not obeying as we should. But a lot of us too are kind of in the middle between being fully awake and fully asleep. As I've studied for the MCAT, which here is my first reference to the MCAT on this podcast and be ready for some more. Something that I've noticed and that I found is really interesting is, is sleep. There are four stages of sleep, which I had no idea that these existed prior to studying for the MCAT. I thought we go to bed and we sleep and it's all the same and we wake up. But our brains go through four distinct electrical periods and they are as follows, N1, N2, N3, and REM, which stands for rapid eye movement. Rapid eye movement is considered deep sleep. It is the sleep when we dream. It's the sleep when there is actually a lot of electrical activity in our brain. On the EEG, we see a lot of electrical activity going on during REM, but we actually don't see hardly any electrical activity during N3 stage of sleep. This is also the period of sleep when we sleepwalk. Interestingly enough, while we're sleepwalking, we also have the least amount of brain electrical activity, which I thought was very interesting because I think while we're, if you've ever seen someone sleepwalk or you've ever seen a video of someone sleepwalking, it seems as if they're so close to being awake, but they're almost not quite there. Tying that to a spiritual context, I think a lot of us are spiritually sleepwalking. Sleepwalking in a fancy medical term is called somnambulism. And I think a lot of us are in this stage of spiritual somnambulism where we're not fully asleep, but we're sort of going through the motions and we actually are using less of our brain or in this case, less of our spirit. And I think in this case, Lehi is talking to those who are spiritually sleepwalking too. People who go to church, take the sacrament, but they don't know why they're doing it. They fail to make that mental connection of I'm taking the sacrament to renew my baptismal covenant with Christ and become closer to him. I think a lot of us go to church and we take the sacrament and we don't think about what we're doing. It's just sort of a, it's just routine at this point. It's just run of the mill. And I think Lehi here is speaking not only to those, like I said, who are fully asleep and are doing things in the wrong direction, but those who aren't making any progress in either direction, those who are spiritually asleep, who read the scriptures, who pray, but they're not actively trying to get closer to God. They're going through the motion. It's actually really interesting because stage three is considered the deepest sleep. And it's actually the hardest to wake someone up from. And I think that's very poignant too, because if somebody is in REM sleep, you can wake them up pretty easily. Maybe it doesn't take as much to shock someone back into following the gospel like they should from when they're fully asleep. But when someone's spiritually sleepwalking, it might be harder to show them, hey, like you're not doing this for the right reason. And I believe that's actually very important. And, and that's the way God wants it is because you have to wake up yourself. Nobody else can wake you up from spiritual sleepwalking. You have to identify that in yourself and make the change. So we live in Provo and we are surrounded by members of the church. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is this idea of spiritual sleepwalking, which is also known as spiritual casualness. And we've had lots of talks about this in elders quorum and Sunday school and talks from the pulpit. And so I wanted to ask Jeremy, in what ways can we combat spiritual sleepwalking? And how can we wake up and shake the chains of hell which binds us, like Lehi says? Yeah, I really like the phrase going through the motions. I think that really sums up this idea of spiritual sleepwalking. And what I think for me personally is the best thing to do is that we need to do everything with the end in mind. That's something that my mission president used to uh, tell us, and I'm sure he got it from someone else. What this council is about is in everything we do, we should be purposeful and do it with the end goal in mind. So if we want to become closer to Christ or become better disciples of Christ, 
every action that we take and everything we do should reflect that, or at least not impede us from progressing towards that in the future. Whether that's partaking of the sacrament and remembering the reason why, whether that's ministering to those who need help, whether that's reading, reading the scriptures, we really need to be intentional about all of our actions. And I think if we do that, we can avoid this sleepwalking. Thanks, Jeremy. I, I really appreciate your input on this. And I think it's this is such a very important topic because we tend to think of you're either doing really, really well or you're doing really, really bad. And I think we need to wake up from this spiritual sleepwalking, especially us members of the church, and get back on the active path where we're making conscious decisions to partake the sacrament with the right mindset, read the scriptures with the right mindset, and not just go through the motions, like you said, Jeremy. Now we're going to get into 2 Nephi 2, which, as we all know, is one of the most is one of the most well-known scriptures as well as one of the most quoted. I wanted to start at the very beginning of this chapter. We know here that Lehi is talking to Jacob, his son. And I think it's very tender how he refers to him as his firstborn in the wilderness, somebody who's grown up around a lot of affliction, right? Jacob never knew Jerusalem. He never knew the wealth that Lehi and his other sons enjoyed. He grew up in the wilderness. One of the things that Lehi tells him is that the Lord is going to consecrate thine afflictions for that gain. And what hit me as I read it this time through is the similarity between what Lehi tells Jacob here and what the Lord tells Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, that these things shall be for thy experience and shall be for thy good. These hard things that we go through. I wonder when Joseph Smith got this answer in Liberty Jail, if he was reminded of this scripture in 2 Nephi 2, after the Lord gives him this instruction, I wonder if he went back and was like, I remember translating that in 2 Nephi. A lot of times I think about how Joseph Smith might've thought of translating a particular verse of the Book of Mormon when that doctrine came up in his life or that principle was pertinent in his life. Something else here in uh, the beginning of 2 Nephi 2 is this idea of coming to Christ with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. For those of you uh, who know me, know that I love etymology, where words come from, what they actually mean. And I was told this on my mission. We had Elder Juan Useda from the 70 come to our mission one time and, and gave us a conference about the Book of Mormon. And one of the things he did that was really interesting was he told us that when Joseph Smith was uh, translating the Book of Mormon, he used a dictionary because he didn't know what some of the words meant. And when he was translating, he wanted to know what was going on in the, in the scriptures, which I just thought was very interesting. But he told us that Joseph Smith used the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. That was the dictionary that he bought and was the most recent dictionary at the time. And there's actually an app, Webster's Dictionary 1828 edition. He told us that if we downloaded this and looked up words in the Book of Mormon that we typically feel like we know the definition to, we'd be astonished at what they actually meant at the time of Joseph Smith. So contrition or to be contrite is something that in modern days, I don't even know what that means now, much less what it meant in 1828. So I looked up the word contrite and it actually took me to the word contrition, which is the process to become contrite. And the definition really surprised me. The definition that's recorded here in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary says the act of grinding or rubbing to powder. And I thought to myself, how is that applicable to this oft-repeated phrase, broken heart and a contrite spirit? Again, here I am referencing the MCAT, but we learn about solutions and how there are particles that can dissolve in water, which is the universal solvent. And I think it's very, very interesting here how we're asked to contrite our spirit, to grind it up into powder, to take what it is now and turn it into a million little particles. And I think it's interesting because we can dissolve that spirit into the living water, which is Jesus Christ. What I think was interesting too, is how we can be almost swallowed up in Christ's love as we come forward with a broken heart, which is broken into little pieces and a contrite spirit, which also means broken up into little pieces. But a lot is easier said than done. I wanted to ask Jeremy here, how can we contrite our spirit and how can we come forward with a broken heart? So there's a couple of things that come to mind when hearing this phrase. We hear it a lot in our Sunday school lessons and in other studies. But I think this is ultimately 
the the biggest call for humility because it, it calls for us to conform or or align our will with the will of God or at least try to and I think that's a two-step process first is the recognition that God does truly know better than us it's the breakdown of this idea that we know better than him and that we know what's best for ourselves and recognizing that he has our he has the best in mind for us and the second step of this is acting on it acting on those promptings whenever you get them to do what God has in store for you. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges to telling myself for me is I, I'd like to think that I'm a humble guy, but sometimes I feel like I conflate being humble with being soft-spoken or non-confrontational when in reality, my heart might not always be in the right place. So I think humility is, is something more profound than what we usually talk about. And in the context of having a contrite spirit and a broken heart, we really need to believe in our hearts that the will of God is the best path for us. I like, Jeremy, how you talked about being humble and wanting to follow the Lord. I think sometimes we almost get into like those routines, right? We've talked about a little bit of like doing the X, Y, and Z steps, and we know that that's following the Lord, but it doesn't help us all the time or our spirits or our hearts. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it kind of leads into this next big topic. This is where Celia gets to hold on to the microphone for a little bit longer, which is Adam and Eve, which is in 2 Nephi 2. I love Eve. And I'm sure every other woman in the church could also say she loves Eve. And I think it's something that really sets our church apart from other gospels and religions is how much we look up to Eve in a sense. I think sometimes a lot of people get Eve confused or not confused. Let me take that back. I think Eve is really misunderstood. I think a lot of times with the way the scriptures are written and sometimes trying to interpret them can be hard and it can seem like we are here and the fall was all Eve's fault. But there's two really important um, notes I want to make is in 2 Nephi chapter 2 verse 22. It says, now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen. And I won't read the rest of the scripture, but I want to focus on the word transgressed. There's a difference between the word transgression and the word sin. So I'm going to give you a little visual aid here, okay? Don't call me crazy. But so let's say there, you've, got, you've got two different scenarios. You are driving in the car and the light all of a sudden goes from yellow to red super, super fast, right? Don't have time to stop on the brakes. So you're like, I'm just going to go through it, right? It's better than trying to slam on my brakes and have everything in my car for like fall towards the window, okay? Running red lights is against the law, okay? But then let's say on a crazy note, you got really mad one night and you ended up killing someone, right? Like that is morally wrong. And that's the difference between sin and transgression. The transgression is because you broke a law, something that was written out and verbally explained to you. But a sin is when you do something morally and inherently wrong, right? And that's kind of the beautiful thing about this, this scene in the Garden of Eden is that them partaking of the fruit was in no way a sin. It was not a bad thing. It was actually very needed, which is the next point I'm going to go into. But it was a transgression. God said, and it's in the, it's in the scriptures. I can pull it up in a second. He said, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of that tree. And they did but they needed to, right? And so that's why it's a transgression. But I definitely want to dive into why they needed to partake of the fruit. So I'm going to have to kind of zoom over into Moses for a little bit because we get more understanding about what happened in the garden in the books of Moses and Abraham. And it was really cool in, let me find it, in verses 16 and 17 in Moses chapter 3, he says, and I, the Lord God, commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee, but remember that I forbid it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So we know in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were given two commandments, multiply, replenish the earth, and don't eat the fruit of that tree. We go through the rest of the story. The serpent comes out to Eve and he's like, you should eat it. And Eve's like, I can't. And he's like, you're not going to die. Like, that's crazy. He won't do that to you. And I think this is where a lot of the misconception and misunderstanding where Eve comes from. Eve wasn't in any way 
tricked or beguiled by the serpent, by the, by the adversary, right? She knew exactly what she was doing. And she understood both of the commandments of God. And she knew that she had to transgress a law in order to keep the other one, to keep the other commandment to multiply, replenish the earth. Because in the Garden of Eden, they were basically immoral, right? They were going to be there forever. They, you, you see it later in Genesis when finally, like, you know, blood rushes through them and they, they kind of kind of finally start to live almost in a sense. And this is really important because she takes partakes of the fruit and then she goes to Adam. And this is also super important. It's something that me and Carter talk about a lot in our marriage almost because she goes, she goes to Adam and she's like, hey, I need you to eat this fruit. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You do realize what that is, right? Like Adam almost kind of has like a freak out moment. And she's like, yes, but do you remember what God told us to do? Do you remember our two commandments? And then it clicks for Adam. And he's like, yeah, I, I know what you did and I understand why now. And so Adam and Eve together made the choice to partake of the fruit, to transgress that law so that we could have the opportunity to be on earth, so that we could be here to understand the Savior's atonement, so we could have an atonement, so we could have a Savior. There was not going to be a plan of salvation if this transgression did not happen. And I think it's really beautiful to see Adam and Eve come together in this decision and it's that's why me and Carter talk about it a lot, right? We man and woman are so equal in not only relationships but in God's perspective, right? And we are all so loved, and it's really cool to look at them as an example of that first marriage and working together and like understanding decisions. And so, like I said before, I love Eve. I could go on for another hour. I could have a whole podcast dedicated to her. Um, but that's just something I really wanted to touch on was how needed Eve was and she completely understood what she was doing and her role in the plan of salvation. Honestly, Celia continues to amaze me how much she knows about the scripture and how much she surprises me with things that I really never thought about before. I think it is very pertinent to this discussion that the Book of Mormon brought forth the correct idea about who Adam and Eve were. And I think it's awesome that we have the right idea about who they are because I'm sure for centuries as other religions saw Adam and Eve as evil, and choosing the wrong that they're up in heaven like thanks guys like we did that for you but here we are you guys are criticizing us i think it's awesome that we have the opportunity to have the correct knowledge about who adam and eve were and their mission just going off of that super fast i think we want to clarify we are not trying to falsify another religion or put them down in any sense of the word we're not trying to elevate ours and say ours is better i think it's one of the beautiful things that sets the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints apart um if you think about a big mirror you've got it on the wall and there's a nail holding it up and that was right the gospel of jesus christ and when jesus and all of his apostles died that nail got pulled off and the mirror drops and it shatters and people got really scared and they took bits and pieces from that mirror some people grabbed faith, some people grabbed repentance, and that's why we see this huge spread of branches of Christianity, right? And that's where the restoration comes in. The restoration is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The restoration that's, you know, we can talk about that <laughs> next year in our podcast when we get into DNC and Joseph Smith and the restoration, but that nail was placed again with the fullness of the gospel on the earth because, because God loves us too much to leave us in the dark. He didn't want to leave us in those dark ages. And so we know that there are bits of truth everywhere. The light of Christ is in everyone, and it really is in the good in people. And we know that there are people out there striving to follow Jesus Christ. But this church has the fullness of the gospel, and that's what the Book of Mormon is. It's what Carter just said, right? It clarifies some of those principles that we lost when that mirror broke. And so I just wanted to make sure that we made it clear that we we love everyone. We truly do. And we love talking to other people of different religions. And it's fun to discuss things like this. I couldn't agree more. I 100% I stand behind what Celia said. Something that I wanted to get into now is this idea of Christ being the mediator between us and the Father. We know how Lehi here in chapter one sort of had a justice tone when speaking to Laman and Lemuel. He took the more side of justice that justice must be served right and to jacob and i and i believe that laman and lemuel probably were eavesdropping and maybe walked into the tent halfway through his sermon here but i think it's interesting how the discussion to jacob is more about the mercy of god and we get these two sides justice and mercy and christ is the connection between those two 
principles of the Father. Here we see how Christ is considered the mediator. And something that I think thought about while I was studying these scriptures this week is Lehi had a great example of a mediator in his life. I think it's very interesting how Lehi is one of the first and only prophets to call Christ the mediator because I think he saw this example of a mediator in his son Nephi being a mediator between his sons who were very disobedient, sort of like we are sometimes. Obviously, we are not perfect, and neither was Nephi. But in this case scenario, Nephi is the mediator, the connection between the justice and the mercy that Lehi was trying to teach his children. I think it's very interesting how Lehi had that example in his life and chose that word for Christ. We wanted to wrap up our podcast today with a discussion of Christ, how he is the mediator, and also this idea of opposition in all things, because that is one of the other scriptures that is one of the most well-known and also repeated scriptures in, in all of the Book of Mormon and in all of the standard works is this idea of opposition in all things and how Christ is our mediator. So in 2 Nephi 2.11, we read about how oppos- there is an opposition in all things. And when I always read that scripture, and in the past, I always looked at the opposition as a negative, stuff that is trying to prevent me from being happy. And we learn in 2 Nephi 2.25 that men are that they might have joy. That Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. And so the whole purpose of life is to receive a fullness of joy through Christ. And that's what Lehi is trying to teach you. I wanted to look at the word opposition from a very non-biased, non-partisan viewpoint and see how opposition, the root word is opposite. When we look at it that way, we see that there's two sides to opposition. There's good opposition and bad opposition. And we tend to focus on the negative opposition, which is like I said, things that prevent us from achieving that joy that Lehi prophesies of, but there is a good opposition. And so when we're experiencing the negative opposition, the push against us, we're also in the other direction, receiving an opposition against that negative opposition, if that makes sense. Where God is the source of the positive opposition in our life, pushing against the negative. He really is the source that rips away the evil forces which can surround us. And I think it's very important in our time to have this image in our head because we are surrounded by so much opposition in our life. I don't need to get into any specifics about what kind of opposition we face on a day-to-day basis, especially in the latter days. But it is very important and something that I do want to point out that God opposes that negative force in our life. And so I think if we look at the word opposition with this lens of it, it, it really does just mean opposite. There is an opposite of all things, good and bad, spirituality and being carnal. I think it's very important that we see how there is a positive force in our life pushing back against the opposition that tries to take away what's good in our life and take away the joy that we feel and turn us into miserable creatures that Satan is that Lehi talks about. I also think it's very interesting how Lehi's objective in these chapters is the benefit and promotion of the welfare of his children. He says that a few times where his only purpose in talking about these things is for the benefit and the promotion of welfare of his children and the hopes that they go forward after he passes away with this in mind. But I think Taking that a step further, it's very, very interesting how in 2 Nephi 6, when we know that Jacob is sort of taken over the mantle of the priest, we know that he was ordained a priest by the hand of Nephi, so he starts this ministry as a priest. We see that his first lesson, his objective, just like his father's, was in benefit and promotion of the welfare of his children. And now in a few weeks, I think it's two weeks when we get into 2 Nephi 6, we will read about this, but I just, this sermon that Lehi gave to Jacob is lasting. And Jacob gives us some of the most beautiful, sacred insights that we get from 2 Nephi and also the book of Jacob. Jacob is really, I think he's very slept on. He has some of the best insights that I look at when I read the scriptures. A lot of times, very quotable scriptures happen to be from Jacob, even though they are in the book of 2 Nephi. But we wanted to wrap up our thoughts with this idea in mind that Christ is that source of positive opposition in our life, and he really is the mediator between us and the Father. He brings us to the Father because he fulfilled 
the requirements of justice through his atonement. And he's also provides that mercy to us. I really like that. It's a parable from President Boy K. Packer where there was a lone shark. I want to call him a lone shark because I think it's a cool word. There's a lone shark and a guy takes a loan to be able to buy this object that he really wants. And then he enjoys the object, goes through life, and then the day of his debt is due. And he hasn't worked on making back that money. And so he does not have the money to pay back his loan shark. And then another guy comes into the picture and offers to pay back the loan to the guy in, in which he only asks for a repayment that he follows him. And the debtor was at the point of going to jail. We know that the loan shark had to enact justice or else he would have been breaking the law too at that point. And that is the perfect picture of what it's like between us and the father. I don't want to paint God as a loan shark. That wasn't my point in this, but there is justice must be served in a very corny way that I said that. Well, that just about wraps it up for this second podcast. We always want to finish with the idea of Christ in mind as this is Christ-centered conversations. We wanted to ask Jeremy here, just as we did with Jake last week, we wanted to ask Jeremy about any final words or hear about his testimony of the Book of Mormon and, and what he has to think about what we talked about today. I truly do have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And my favorite part about that is that it has brought me closer to Christ. And to tie my testimony back to Christ, which, like you said, should be um, what we revolve our thoughts and, and testimonies around, I really love the idea and description of him being a mediator. And I, I truly have felt that in my life, that he has been an advocate for me. And it's kind of funny because mediator in the in the legal space is is supposed to be an impartial party when there's litigation. It's supposed to be someone that comes in to mediate conversation, to facilitate a, con a conversation and be somewhat neutral. And so when I think about it, and I want to say spin this in a positive light, I feel like Christ is not a very good mediator because he's also our advocate. And he usually tips the scales in our favor because I know I always fall short of his grace and I make mistakes time and time again. But I know that because of his atonement, the scales are able to be tipped in my favor because of his sacrifice. And I'm truly grateful for that. And I, and I do know that that has been manifest in my life. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for your testimony and your words and for joining us today. I know doing a podcast like this in our little apartment can be weird, but we really appreciated it. And I'm sure everyone else has felt the spirit as well listening to this podcast. That's always the goal. But yeah, that is our podcast. Next week, we will be looking at 2 Nephi 3 through 5. So three chapters, which is great. And I think that's about it. I'm Celia. I'm Carter. And this is Christ-Centered Christ -centered Conversations. conversations.